Hey, this is Barbara Corcoran, and you are now tuned in to Business Unusual. And everything you ever learned about business, throw it out the window. I'm going to tell you the real deal. Listen in. Today, I'm going to answer all your burning questions about work, life, starting a company, getting on track, and much, much more. Be sure to call in to the Business Unusual hotline with your question at 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. But first, today I have with me the uber-successful founder and CEO behind Idea Village. You know it, the company that brings products to market under the name of As Seen on TV banner every day. You see it on TV. Stay up late, you're bound to see one of Andy Kobani's ads. Today, Idea Village has one of the largest retail distribution networks in the entire country. They sell over 77,000 mass retail outlets. That's a lot of places to be selling this product. Today, I have with me the founder and CEO, Andy Kubani. His expert marketing skills have gotten his products to the top of their respective categories, like the Finishing Touch Women's Hair Removal Tool or the popular HD Vision eyeglasses. He's one of my closest friends, and to me, that's the most important reason I have him here today, because he's the smartest damn guy I've ever spoken to. He's also my ski buddy. He's not as good as I am, but he's right behind me, and I'm pleased to see that he's improving. Let's hear how Andy's superstar traits helped him build the great business he runs today. And I want to start with, Andy, if you don't mind, what I think your single most amazing trait. You are the best salesman I've ever met in my life, and I'm from the sales business. That's what I'm told. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if a great singer realizes they're a great singer or a great salesman. It's about building relationships. What makes a great salesman is always having good intentions for the other person. My dad always taught me when you go and meet with a buyer or a retailer, always go prepared to what you can do for them. Mm. And every product I ever brought to market, we had data showing that it was a huge success before I ever brought it to retail. Because your feeling was you're not going to introduce it unless you were sure they can make a lot of money with it? Yeah, because every retail buyer has goals and objectives that they have to meet. So they have to drive a certain amount of sales with a certain amount of margin. And I always brought that to them. I always gave them a product that was already a proven success on TV that I knew based on our metrics, would be a huge success at retail, and I gave them the margin they needed. So they made their numbers, and I made my numbers. So it's a game of everybody winning, but you're putting the customer first. It sounds trivial. I mean, everybody says put the customer first. But do you believe most salespeople do that? I know. I think most salespeople go to try and sell whatever they're selling with what's in it for them. Mm. But you have to look at it, what's in it for the consumer. And you can go back to the greatest business successes of all time. Look at Sam Walton always about serving the customer. Everyday low prices, a friendly shopping experience, and a clean store environment. There's a common sense 101. If you look at Costco, Jim Sinegal, same thing. Look at Apple. The greatest successes are the companies that serve the people the best. Mm. When you say people, do you think it extends also to your employees? If you're building a business, do you have to serve the employee or their job is to serve the customer too? I think their job is to serve the customer. Your job is to take care of your employees. I try and do that by, you know, when we hire, we have what I call a no bad guy policy. What's that mean? Basically, we hire nice people that know how to be nice to other people. And if we get a bad apple, we weed them out. And actually, I don't even weed them out. The culture weeds them out. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Your whole team gets together and say, it's over here today for you, honey, get out of here? 
somehow the culture extracts the bad apples. Mm. I don't know how it works, but it just works that way. If somebody's not a team player, if they're not kind and courteous, strong group of people we have, it's like a family. And if there's just a bad apple, they get extracted in six months, they'll be out. Yeah. And do you fire them? They end up leaving. <laughs> they just leave on their own. They know they don't fit in. They don't fit in. They don't have the same work ethic. They don't have the same value system. Ultimately, they don't feel comfortable there and they end up leaving. Give us your short story of how you got started. I've heard it, but I'd like to share it with everybody. The early days after I graduated NYU, I was actually looking to start a business. and Right away, out of school. Right away out of school. Why not get a job? Why not get some experience under your belt and learn something before you start off on your own? Well, I worked through college. I worked for a family car dealership. We had a, my dad owned a Dodge dealership where I was initially a salesman and I used to work over the summers. And then I was a sales manager for my last two summers there. When I was there, very, very successful in that limited time period. Even then you didn't say, hey, I'm in college, I'm selling summers. And I'm a successful salesperson. You didn't realize I could sell anything. The first time I took the job as selling cars, I was 17. My dad spoke to the other salesman at the dealership, and he said, my son would like to sell cars. I had approached him on it. And the other salesman said, but Mr. Kubani, if you let your son sell cars, we may have a really valid customer that because he handles it, we'll lose that customer. Mm -hmm. So my father came back to me and they said, well, what if it doesn't work out? What do I do if you don't succeed at it? I said, if I don't succeed, fire me. And I said, but what if I'm your number one salesman my first month? I said, what will you do for me? He said, I'll give you any car you want. So, <laughs> so my first month, I sold 22 cars. Wow. Which made me the number one salesman in the company. They had eight salesmen. The dealer sold about 80 cars a month. I sold 25% of the cars my first month. And I got the car of my choice. At that time, the best car Dodge made was the Dodge Daytona. <laughs> so anyway, so I got my Dodge Daytona. At 17, that was really cool. You couldn't have gotten a job immediately at a Mercedes dealership? I wish we owned a Mercedes dealership. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so then you worked through college at that car dealership, and then you started your own business the moment you graduated from college? Well, I was looking to, I was exploring different businesses to start. And I ended up uh, using a desk at my brother's office who had a company called U.S. Buyers Network. And U.S. Buyers Network sold products directly to consumer through print, mail order, and TV. So my brother was walking past my desk on day two, and he said, you know, while you're trying to figure out what you're doing, why don't you see if you can sell these products that I'm selling direct to consumer, see if you can sell them to retail stores. He had other sales reps working on it, but they were not successful. Bring me back to that time period. Did retail stores sell product that was sold on TV? Or was this not two yet. separate categories? Two separate categories. Anytime you saw something on TV, they would always end the commercial with not available in retail stores anywhere. So it was ah. a complete turn of that. I think it was my second phone call I made. And uh, yeah, the other sales reps had taken all the better accounts. But on my second phone call, I called hardware chain in Ohio called Home Centers, and I sold them $20,000 of merchandise, a product called the Whisper 2000, which was like 1999 hearing aid. The commission rate for sales reps was 5%. So I made $1,000 on my second phone call. Wow. I said, this is a great business. I don't need to do <laughs> anything else. I'm going to focus on this. This is your older brother, right? You have a few brothers. How many do you have? Yeah, this is uh, my brother, AJ. He's seven years older than me. And was he thrilled and promoted you in that job right away? So that was my second phone call. My first year, to just fast forward, uh, I did about $5 million in revenue. 
from nothing and it wasn't even a full year. You know, I was promoted to vice president of sales. From there, I went out and built a sales rep network of 90 sales reps. For your brother, AJ. Yeah. I have a feeling that marriage is going to come to an end soon in the story, right? Yeah, that was a great part of my career. I was with uh, his company for nine years. On the wholesale side, I built about $150 million wholesale business. We had created a category at retail called As Seen on TV. And was that the first time that expression was ever used? Now it seems commonplace. I see it on TV. I see it on TV. That's your brand. But at the time, were people using that as a sales point? Because you had said earlier that was counterintuitive. You know, we didn't invent it, but we really created the department at retail for these as seen on TV like products. aisles where that product could be shown. Yeah, because back then there was no internet. There was no online reviews. People were skeptical about calling over the phone and giving their credit card to an unknown source. So 90% of consumers who saw and wanted to buy the product on TV never went through with the purchase Mm. because they would only buy it if they could walk into a brick and mortar store that they trusted, see and touch the product and be able to return it if they weren't happy. So this business exploded, even though our business grew over the next five years to about 150 million wholesale business. We created a multi-billion dollar category at retail, Mm -hmm. which became known as As Seen on TV and was in tens of thousands of stores. You left your brother, AJ, and started your own business in short order. What was his reaction? It was 1999. I think at that point, we both had nine years together. He was comfortable with the work I did while I was with him. He was comfortable on his path forward. And I knew that it was time for my next chapter. So you just figured, I want to do it on my own. Couldn't you have done more together as brothers and partners? If families or brothers or siblings working together always has complications because we both have wives. <laughs> ah, of course. So, my gosh. I should have been able to figure that out on my own. We have our own respective families and we left on very good terms. I wished him well. He wished me well and really saw things changing. By 1995, I was in 900 retail chains. By the end of the 90s, you had three mass merchants left. That was Walmart, Kmart, and Target. And you had like three drug chains left. You had Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid. You had a few more, but those were the primary. And so you had the mass market had consolidated so much. And innovation, which typically doesn't come from big companies, as you know, right? Of course. It comes from the small entrepreneur. And the small entrepreneur didn't have the resources or relationships to get into the mass market. So I saw this disconnect between innovation and the mass market. And I saw Idea Village as a way to bridge that gap. The internet emerged. Actually, I hired the same consulting group that was working for Jeff Bezos when he launched Amazon. He was a couple years ahead of me. Using Idea Village as a portal, really, for the innovation that we can vet, we can test market, and then launch to the mass market for these smaller guys. I know you recently sold a chunk of your business to a very large company for a heck of a lot of money, which makes you truly my richest friend. What do you think about the position of a tiny entrepreneur hustling against the big guys? Seems like a world where the big guys are bigger and the little guy has more of a stretch to run. What do you think about the capacity of the little guy to compete? I think the capacity of today more than ever, the small guy has a huge advantage. A huge advantage. Huge but advantage. Why? With people being so large butting their heads up against it. Because big companies become bureaucratic and it's very hard for them to get things done in a timely fashion. They're not nimble. Mm. And speed to market today is the most important thing because the way information is disseminated, 
the minute something's hot, it goes through the social whether social media or digital media. The information's out there very quickly today. Small guy could take advantage of that. We see an opportunity, even though we're not a small, small guy, but we're quite quick and resourceful. We're kind of in the middle of the big corporation and the um, small entrepreneur. So what we'll do is we see something in social, we can quickly source that or design, develop our own variation of that, source it, be in the market within four to six months, mm. which is extremely fast. If it's a large corporation, it would be two years or three years, and they would miss the market. You know, small entrepreneur, they may not have the resources. If they do have the resources, which you can source through um, places like Alibaba today, so they can quickly source. If they're resourceful and quick, they can get on Amazon very quickly as well. So to a young entrepreneur who's starting out first few years of business, who's struggling against large competitors in their space, you would say hogwash, it doesn't make a difference, you have the advantage? Could you really persuade someone to think that way because you really believe it? You focus on your advantage. I mean, of course, you know, you don't have the financial wherewithal of a big corporation or the amount of employed, but I think being nimble and quick, if you just have some good common sense and you know where to look and you're willing to work hard and hustle, you'll be able to move the ball much quicker than a large corporation. Mm. You know, I even remember distinctly a point when growing my own real estate business where I remember feeling like I had a visualization. If I had an idea on a Monday, I felt like I'd get out on the street by Friday. As we got layers of people and more and more employees, I remember feeling like I was in a great big battleship, like, okay, we're going to hang a left five miles out. <laughs> and then you have to bring that big ass of the boat all around with you and a few people don't want to come and everything else. I remember feeling the enormous frustration of running a bigger business versus a smaller business and missing the good old days when I could have an idea and get it, boom, out there. But how do you keep that going in a company? Maybe I didn't navigate those waters as well as I should. Well, I've intentionally kept our team small. We've limited, uh, I guess, the size of what we could potentially grow to revenue-wise, but I think that's kept us highly successful. I like to say we have the resources of a large corporation, but the nimbleness of an entrepreneur. And if you were four times the size of employees, you didn't think that would be possible, that you could move that way? Yeah, ultimately would crash and burn. Like we, the large competitors that are doing that. Lots of them do that. The question you have to ask yourself is, why are you doing this? Why do you want to grow? Why do you want to be a billion dollars? Who cares? Mm. You got to first say, I'm in business to serve the customer. And what's the best way for me to do that? The best way for us to do that was to stay small. We right-sized our company, and I never looked to really grow too much beyond that. Andy, I have a question for you based on the constant question I'm asked, how do you network? How do you get to who you want? How do you make friends with people? I've never seen anyone make instant friendships through business and personally more readily than you do and actually keep the friendships and nurture them and have such a full life of people all around you loving you to death. What happens that enables you to do that? What's on your mind? Is that a plan you have for your life? How do you get your work and your life so rich with friendships? What is it about you that makes that happen? I've never met anyone who could even partially measure up. You have to invest in the relationship and, you know, take a genuine interest in other people. If you're interested in other people and you care about other people, people's favorite subject is to talk about themselves. If you want to make friends with somebody, ask them questions about themselves and about things they're interested in. And that's your key to networking? Usually make friends with people I have an interest in. Mm. So it's easy to become friends if you have a genuine interest. And then you keep it small. You can't be good friends with everybody. You have to pick like this group of people that you have the time to invest into that relationship. As you know, it takes years and years and years before you really get close. But over 
you know, five years, 10 years or so. Yeah, and you're like my family now. I feel like I'm related to you. Absolutely. I think we all do. I think we all have that in common. Do you have the a whole separate network of business people that you lean on and that you help each other? Because I wouldn't be privy to that. I'm on the friendship, friendship side. That's how I did it. You know, I, I found a way to basically be in the places where the retailers were going to be. I spent a lot of effort and time that to That was be by there. design. You just said, yeah. I'm going to be in their faces where they hang out. I'm going to hang out. Uh, sketch that out a little bit for me because that is something that so many young entrepreneurs just don't get or don't even think about. In the retail industry, there's the retail trade press. And they have cocktail receptions and they have events and they honor certain retailers. And I was at every single one of them. Mm. And then they would do special events like at Walgreens headquarters or they'd go at a new store opening for Kmart or Target. And you go there, you meet the senior leadership, you start to become friends with them. What a great commitment of time to get on a plane, fly all over the place, go to yet another cocktail party. Did you know that that was going to pay off for you big time and give you access to every big retailer in the nation? Took a tremendous amount of effort on your part, I'm sure. I lived on a plane for the first several years of being in business. I lived on the plane. I was always in front of the retailer. And every time you have an opportunity to be in front of the retailer, take it. Right, or your customer. So you didn't even think about it. You just thought, that's what I do, period. That's what I did. When I first started, shortly after, I read a book on selling over the phone. It said, never try and close the deal over the phone. Just try and get a meeting. I just would get a meeting. People would say, you got to fly over Saturday to get the lower rate. If it was $1,000, $2,000, whatever it costs to go visit the customer, I just get on a plane and go. I didn't worry about the cost. I said, all right, it's time to grow and drive and just get in front of the customer as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Is there a single retailer out there at the top that you don't know on a first name basis today? No, I know everybody from the buyer level to the CEO level. And the thing is the CEO wasn't the CEO when I met him, he was a buyer. So So you kind of grew up with them. I grew up with all the retail guys and I always delivered. So it was always referral. A lot of my retailers that end up selling was because I was referred by another retailer that wasn't a direct competitor at the time. How did that change once you started having children, once you started having your family, your lovely wife? What happened then? Were you still on a plane constantly? When I started Idea Village, I had to start all over again. So yeah, I was traveling quite a bit, both domestically. And then, you know, if you have a new hot product, you got to get over to China to work on building and developing the product. You do what it takes. There is no... Well, your family also has to do what it takes, right? My wife was very supportive. She came from a doctor's family, highly educated. The business entrepreneur family is a little bit different. She had to learn how to adapt to me a little bit. It did cause uh, probably extra stress on her because we have five children, but she understood, was very supportive. You know, as Jack Welch said, there is no work-life balance. If you want to be successful, you do what it takes, period. And she signed up for that initially. You had to educate Nita along the way. Absolutely. But in light of recent events, I think she's happy she did. What about your path along the way? Was there anything that seemed like the worst disaster ever that turned into an opportunity later? I have a philosophy that very often on the flip side of a disaster, building a business, you find your best opportunity. What about you? All the time. Why does it happen? And give me an example, if you don't mind. The reason I was working on starting my company is because I couldn't get a job. I <laughs> couldn't get hired. So. Okay. I did interview on Wall Street, you know, for some of the big firms. I wasn't hireable. I think they saw, based on my background, family business or whatever, um, I didn't have the highest GPA. I wasn't a candidate compared to some of the other guys they had. And so because I couldn't really get a job that I wanted, 
it forced me to start my own business. So that's the first thing. Have you ever looked back at that and wondered, yeah, I wonder what I've done on Wall Street. I wonder who I'd be today. Or are you totally content with going your own way? I'm very happy with the way it turned out. And, and if it, you had gone there, do you think you'd be a happy man? Could you possibly be happy working for a large corporation? I don't think so. And I, why not? I like the freedom of being an entrepreneur, kind of type of person that likes to do what I want to do mm. and focus on that. I do really well when I work on things that I enjoy, but I'm forced to work on something I don't do as well. Well, don't you think everybody's that way? They excel at what they enjoy doing? Yeah. That's why you should always find work that you enjoy, but I don't think I would have enjoyed the work in the large corporation. I can't picture that at all. I can't imagine you overwhelmed and stressed. Do you hide it well or you just don't go there? I think you have to know that everything is happening for the best. I believe God is in control and whatever happens is going to ultimately be for the best. Even if it's short-term pain, it'll be long-term gain. And I've seen it over and over again throughout my life. I've always seen a negative turn into a positive. Give me an example of one that may have surprised you a bit, even if you were expecting it. You know, back in uh, 2003, I launched the product called the Finishing Touch, mm. which was a ladies' pen-shaped hair trimmer, and uh, followed up with uh, Microtouch, which is a pen-shaped men's hair trimmer. Very successful for the first couple of years. We then went out to try and sell the business. Um, As a portion of your general business, just right. that product, a business around that product. We were trying to sell them, those brands. And I um, met with a number of the large companies, really didn't have any serious interest from anybody. So we kept them and we continued to sell them over the next several years. We made a profit by all the business we did. I kept trying to reinvent the finishing touch and lo and behold, fast forward, I created something of far greater value. And that was flawless. And you didn't expect to see that later on. Why? Because you kept at it and tried to make something similar. You're always on your mind, reinvent it, you reinvent know, it. We were an innovation new product machine. So we would be looking at 3,000 products a year. It would be like hard testing about 60, 70 new products a year and launching seven to 10 of those a year. So that was the model, right? And we would basically looking for the next big thing that could blow up. But at the same time, you know, um, I continued to invest in a very small percentage of those that I thought had long-term potential to become a brand mm. and finishing touch was one of them. And that's been your biggest hit to date. Yes. That was the most successful program to and date. And you were able to sell that in this last year. Do you mind if I share with people? I know it's public record. What did you sell that for? We sold it for um, a potential of 900 million. The reason I say potential is because there was a percentage up front, uh, about 45% of that is in what's called an earnout. Uh, oh, so you only have $400 million in the bank. That's it? <laughs> Andy, I'm going to lend you some cash. <laughs> so there's our earnout provision. So, we, you know, with the potential is 900 <laughs> Don't write off the first five. It sounds like a big number to me. But we're working hard, you know, and, and that's the other thing. Things are never as bad as they seem, and things are never as good as they seem. Things may seem horrible today. And then tomorrow or next week, things change and it's not so bad. If you or, stay in the game. If you stay in the game. And then you think things are phenomenal, everything's going perfect, and then something happens and you know knocks you a little bit off your horse. So I try and just keep an even keel view of the world. And I don't get too excited when things are great and I don't get too upset when things are bad because I know it's going to change. I have never known you. You had a bad day. Have you ever had a bad day? 
Yeah, of course. We all have bad days. Well, yeah, I've never seen you show it. What do you do for yourself when you think, ah, this is a bad day, this is a bad week, this is a bad bottom line? What do you do to lift yourself up? Because I think you have this tremendous, resilient mindset. What I do in business when things are tough, I write at the top of the page, what are five things I could do today to drive sales? Sales solve all problems in business. If you can drive more sales, that usually takes care of a lot of stuff. You get so busy in your day-to-day grind that you you miss certain opportunity. So I start to focus on what can I do to drive sales because I know that'll make me feel better because you can sell your way out of anything. So I focus on that. I listen to good, positive food for the mind, inspirational videos on YouTube. Joel Osteen is one of the greatest inspirers of all time. Professional athletes have these great videos that talk about winning and success. And that will change your attitude toward the day where you could actually get up and do something to make more sales. Because I think very often sales, you have to be in a right mindset to be successful doing it in the first place. If you're having a bad day, that would not be my day to choose to drive sales. I would wait till that day pass and get in a better mood. But you're saying you go right to the table and say, hey, I'm not going to drive sales today. Do things that will make me feel better. So it could be having a conversation with someone who I feel good every time I speak to them. Could be mm-hmm. calling Barbara Corcoran. I know. I get too many calls from you. I didn't know it was just a solution to your misery. How much is, does your mindset or attitude influence your success? Oh, huge. Because one is I am the eternal optimist, as you know. Absolutely. I always believe things are going to work out. Things are going to go well. We're going to be successful. If things don't go exactly right, God's in control. If you do the right thing, the right thing will happen. What about when they don't work out? It doesn't shake your faith in that at all? Because everything doesn't flip its other side and show you the shiny face. It's all your timeline. If your timeline is this week and it didn't work out this week, yeah, you'll be upset. But if you look at the timeline being one year, five years, 10 years, a lifetime, it's all going to work out. In the end, it all works out. How do you teach your children excellent values when they have grown up with so much affluence? I've met them all. They seem like regular kids. It's remarkable to me that they're not spoiled rotten. How do you pull that off when they have so much wealth? One is you set a good example. They see myself and they see Nita, my wife, both working very hard at what we do. So we're working hard. We're living reasonable. I don't have a fancy car. You know, we live in a nice home, but we don't live at the level we potentially could. So I think it's just setting a good example. And then we have a lot of very successful friends too. So compared to them, my kids feel normal. If you want to look skinny, hang out with fat people. (laughs) (laughs) I think on that note, I'm going to end it. The best line of the whole interview. Thanks, Andy. All right. Thank you. Pleasure. Let's take a short break to talk about a company I love. My friends at On Deck Business Loans. Now let's get back to the show. Hi, my name is Sergey, and I'm from Miami, Florida. And I have a question. Um, I have a product that I designed, created myself, and I'm first-hand user of it. It's a little uh, insert for helmets and hats that prevent heat strokes and heat exhaustion. And my question is, where do I go from here? How do I launch it? How do I um, introduce the world to a product that has never been done before? Something that people don't even search for, but but is very much needed all over the world. Hey, Sergey, you had a great question, one that people ask all the time. I'm going to let Andy answer it fast. Yeah, so Sergey, you you have an insert for helmets and hats that prevents heat strokes and heat exhaustion. 
who's the target customer for that? Well, initially I designed it for cyclists because that's who I am. And after competing in Europe, I was overheating here in Florida. And I initially I made it for cyclists, but as people were approaching me from different other sports, such as uh, cricket, believe it or not, which is one of the biggest sports in Australia and United Arab Emirates and New Zealand and on that side. So right now, it's hard for me to tell because as the orders are coming in, I see people, uh, hockey clubs ordering it. I see cyclists ordering it. I see firefighters ordering it. So I have not determined what is my primary customer because every time I shift one way, somebody else orders it and I go, uh-huh, there's another avenue that way. So I would say primarily athletes, but I cannot categorize which sport specifically because it covers too many of them, you know, but uh, a lot of football players as well. So football, cricket, baseball, cycling, um, you know, you name it, anything that wears headgear, all of them overheat. But Sergey, I'm a little confused. So you're really selling them well, are you? I do sell. Yeah, I do sell them. I have it on Amazon. I have a distribution center in Chicago, Illinois. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to worry about the orders when I go because I travel a lot. I was approached by a baseball coach who was pushing it through Miami-Dade youth groups and um, different uh, baseball leagues here. But I have not determined what the most of the orders are coming into. My last one actually was like a couple of days ago that went to UK and they ordered 10 pieces and it's a hockey club. Go figure. But there's a lot of indoor sports as well. They use it as long as they have some sort of a headgear. Most of those athletes do overheat. And that's how people are finding you just on Amazon. That's how do they find you? Yes, there I do a little bit of Facebook advertising. A lot of social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and some of the Google. I have a video in three different languages. I have an English and Spanish and Russian, which is circulating over YouTube. So I get some, uh, a little bit of traffic from there. So why are you asking how do you launch it? I'm a little confused. Well, because it's been about a year and I don't feel that this product has taken off, even though I do sell it here and there, 10 pieces, 5 pieces, 20 pieces. But really on the big picture... Is still very, very quiet, to be honest with you, because I would assume that I would not be able to keep up with the production based on the demand of the product. But the issue with it is that it's not something that people search for. It's not like a popular item. There is no really people that are searching for cooling headgear. It's more of people that are looking for cooling towel. That was actually sold on QVC about, I don't know, seven years ago. They did pretty good, but that's where they shift from. They start looking for cooling towel, and then from those keywords, they actually find me. It hasn't taken off. Based on my sales, it's been pretty quiet. So I think that one big launch as far as someone who is experienced and launched multiple products, one little squeak from that person. Your prayers have been answered here because Andy Kobani is with us, and he has launched more successful products than probably anyone What's your best advice for Sergey here, Andy? It starts with evaluating what's the size of the price, right? So the way we look at it is, you know, we serve the mass market. How big is the problem that we're trying to solve? And how great is the solution that is solving that problem? And if you have a big problem, which means a lot of people have it, mass market has it, and it's a very painful problem for that market, that's a big opportunity. And then if you have a great solution to solve that problem, not a mediocre solution, a great solution, those two things being big, then you can do a lot of volume. But it sounds to me that you have a small problem and that it seems painful, but the amount of people that own helmets is 
at least as we define it, not really the mass market. Mass market to me is 50 million or more people that we can uh, target. So you got a small problem and you're a segment of the helmet market. You know, your volume is not coming and you're saying, why isn't the volume coming? You're a segment of the helmet market. And how many people overheat? I ride a bike. Personally, I've not had that problem. I've gone on 50 mile bike rides and that doesn't seem to be something I've ever encountered. But I could see in uh, southern parts of the United States that it could be a problem. So then you have a geographic. You have people who wear helmets in very hot climates. So you're narrowing the market, and then how good is your solution? As you said, they're solving this issue with cooling towels, or you could solve it with, you know, when they get their water bottle, they fill it with ice, and that cools them down. you got to evaluate those two things, and maybe just accept that it's a niche market, and you have a niche product. Is that what you wanted to hear, Sergey? Well, kind of. Mass market is one thing, but the other thing is how big of a problem is it, really? I think that the problem is pretty big because there's a lot of football players that have done and a lot of them that are constantly overheating. And this is just football, and this is not even just in Florida. This is all over the place. But when I was approached by a person from uh, South Africa, and he said that, well, this is a extremely big problem in that part of the world, and cricket is very big. Yeah, but how many did he order for his cricket problem? Actually, I didn't. What happened is, initially, I didn't even go the route where I could accompany, you know, all the helmets and headgear. It's not only helmets. you got to remember all those people that are sitting in the stadium and watching the football game, for example, in the sun, or like I went to U.S. Open and tennis in Key Biscayne, and that was like, you know, 40 degrees Celsius. So this is what you do, Sergey, because you want advice on how to blow this up, right? What I would do, and I don't know your product, I haven't looked at it, but just one thought— is a market that is huge is ball caps. Everyone wears ball caps, whether you play golf, you play tennis, you go to ball games, you're out and about. Everyone wears these caps because it blocks the sun and it's hot out. Come up with cool caps. Cool caps, build it into a ball cap, make it very branded, come up with a cool trademark. And that's a mass market item. The helmet's not a mass market item. The ball cap's a mass market item. And that you can sell. You can start with the center of the bullseye. Beach resorts, wherever it's hot, ball games, stadiums, and then you can even get in a license. You you know get all the team licenses for baseball teams and football teams and sell cool caps with that, or you can license cool caps to uh, people who have the licenses for all the teams. That's how I would yeah. approach it. You know what? I have to end it right there, Sergey, because he just handed you a multi million dollar idea and the name that goes with it. I love cool cap. Fabulous. <laughs> the- That sounds great. Yeah, I did trademark Coolhead. Um, it is patented in the trademark office. He said, "Call it Cool Cap, Cool Cap, Cool right? Cap." Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool Caps. Yeah, because alliterative and alliterative becomes more sticky in the mind of the consumer. Right. There you have it. Run with it, please. This guy's never wrong. Got it. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks for calling me. Okay, Sergey. Right, mm-hmm. Have a good one. Thank you. Too. And that's all the questions we have time for today. If you have a question, leave me a voicemail on the Business Unusual hotline, 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. You can also tweet it to me at Barbara Corcoran, and I may just answer it on a future episode. You've been listening to Business Unusual with me, Barbara Corcoran. Come back next week to hear more steps and missteps I took on the path to success. Search and follow Business Unusual on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Audiation.